Today we're wrapping up our series entitled, By the Numbers. So far we've looked at the numbers 1, 3, 4, 7, 10, 12, 40, and multiples of 10 and 12. In today's episode, we want to explore some unique numbers that we find in the Bible. The Bible is incredibly interconnected with threads that run through it from beginning to end. In this podcast, I will uncover these threads, help you dig deeper into God's truth, and inspire you to live your life with greater confidence and joy. Welcome to Bible Threads with me, Dr. Bruce Becker. Early on in this series, I mentioned a few times that in both Hebrew and Greek, numbers double for letters and letters for numbers. For example, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Aleph. Aleph is also the word for the number one. In Greek, Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, as well as the number one. By the way, did you know that the English word alphabet comes from the first two letters of the Greek alphabet? Alpha and beta. Alpha, beta. Just drop the final A, and you've got alphabet. Now keep in mind this number and letter relationship as we look at a few unique numbers in the Bible. Our first number is 318. It's found in Genesis chapter 14. Here we read about an event involving Abraham, his nephew Lot, a coalition of four kings, and another coalition of five kings who go to battle against each other. Long story short, the five kings, one of whom was the king of Sodom, where Lot and his family lived, drew up battle lines against the four kings. The four kings won the battle, and because they won, they went up to Sodom, seized the city's plunder, grabbed Lot and his possessions, and took Lot as a captive. When Abraham learned of this, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household. The phrase, born in his household, referred to men who had been adopted into the household. Note this distinction. A man's natural physical son would be referred to as the offspring of the man's body. Adopted sons were offspring of his household. These 318 men were, say, secondary sons of Abraham. They were all in his household. One of these sons was a man by the name of Eliezer. We hear about him in the next chapter. Since Abraham didn't yet have a son, Abraham had planned on making Eliezer his heir. It appears that Eliezer was in charge of the other adopted men born in Abraham's household. By the way, God said no to this plan. God would keep his promise that Abraham and Sarah were going to have their own son. But here's where it gets interesting. The traditional rabbinic explanation is that the number 318 is the numerical value of the letters in the name Eliezer. There are six letters in Hebrew that spell Eliezer. If you assign the numerical value to each letter, add them all together, guess what the sum total is? 318. So there seems to be a link between Eliezer and the number of men 
that Abraham took on this rescue mission. Is this a coincidence? A curiosity? Why did God inspire Moses to record this exact number, which is also the numerical equivalent of the name of Eliezer? Here's one thought for you to consider. There is a thread that runs through the Old Testament that involves younger sons saving older sons and older sons serving younger sons. Think of Esau, the older, and Jacob, the younger. God's promise of a Savior went through the younger son, uh, Jacob, not the older son, Esau. Or think of Joseph saving his older brothers and the older brothers bowing at the feet of Joseph in Egypt. Now, in this account of Abraham, Lot was Abraham's nearest relative. And if Abraham would never have a son of his own, Lot would become Abraham's natural heir. When Abraham and Lot earlier had separated their households and flocks, Lot went and lived among the godless people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because he lived there, he ended up getting captured by the four kings. Abraham and the adopted son of his household, Eliezer, along with the other sons of the household, had to rescue Lot. Again, the younger, so to speak, saved the older. Is that why Moses included the exact number of 318 to make a connection with Eliezer, the adopted son of Abraham's household? Well, we can't say for sure, but it certainly fits with the Bible thread of God choosing a younger son to carry out his plans. And if you still have your doubts that this younger son thread exists, I'd point you to two other examples that we find in the Old Testament. Think of Moses, the younger brother of Aaron. He led Israel out of Egypt to the Promised Land. Or think of David, the youngest of seven sons. He's the one who became king of Israel. This thread of God using a younger son runs throughout the Old Testament, and I, I think that Eliezer may be another example of it. But what do you think? The next unique number we want to explore today is at the other end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, chapter 13. The number is 666. It, too, is found only once in the Bible. Let's first set the context. In the book of Revelation, Jesus allowed the Apostle John to witness seven different visions. Each of these seven visions all cover the same time frame, from the start of the New Testament age to the end times, culminating on Judgment Day. The fourth vision of these seven visions contains its own seven individual visions. Let me say that again. The fourth vision of these seven visions that comprise the book of Revelation contains its own seven individual visions. The first one is about Satan, who is pictured as a dragon with seven heads and ten horns, with crowns on each of the horns. In this vision, Satan tries to destroy Christ's church. The second vision is about a beast from the sea. The third one is about a beast from the earth. It is in this third vision that we find the reference to 666. Now, these two beasts are two weapons that Satan uses to try to destroy Christ's church, and they often work in concert with one another. 
Satan has been using these weapons for the last 2,000 years and will continue to do so until the last day. Since they work in concert, let's look at both. The beast from the sea is also pictured as having seven heads and ten horns with a crown on each horn. And on each of the heads was a blasphemous name that mocked God. This beast looked like a leopard, but had feet like a bear and a mouth like a lion. Let's just pause there. If you are familiar with the prophet Daniel's vision of the four beasts in Daniel chapter 7, those beasts represented four kings and four kingdoms, you will notice the many similarities between Daniel's vision and this one. Satan, the dragon, gave this beast its authority. Remember, when Satan and the other rebellious angels were tossed out of heaven by God, they were thrown not into hell, but to the earth. This planet is where Satan exercises his influence. So the power that this beast has is an earthly power. Now this beast is wearing ten crowns. Who wears crowns? Kings and queens. Those who rule countries and kingdoms. The beast from the sea symbolizes governmental powers that Satan uses against Christ's New Testament church. Then we learn what the beast from the sea is empowered by Satan to do. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. More on the 42 months a bit later. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written from the creation of the world in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Just pause a second and think of all the ways throughout history that Satan has used governmental authority to blaspheme the name of Christ, to persecute his church, as well as the individuals that comprise Christ's church. For example, think of the Chinese government's intolerance of Christians or Muslim countries that allow its citizens to persecute and kill Christians today. Satan has, is, and will continue to use civil government to attack Christ and his church. Well, that's the beast from the sea. What about the beast from the earth? The description of this beast begins, Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. The second sentence is not the best translation. The NIV translates it as a lamb and a dragon. However, in every occurrence of the word lamb in the book of Revelation, it refers to Jesus, the Lamb of God. And every occurrence of the word dragon in the book of Revelation refers to Satan. So, a good but kind of wooden translation would be, he had two horns like lamb, but spoke like dragon. Or, or maybe a better way to translate this is, 
He had two horns like the lamb, but spoke as the dragon. Now don't miss this. The beast from the earth looks like Christ, but is really Satan. That's similar to something Jesus warned us about. He said, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. The beast from the earth looks like the lamb, but talks like Satan, and is indeed Satan. So what else do we know about this beast? Well, the following verses in chapter 12 give us some clues. Let's take uh, them one at a time. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. So we see here the actions of the beast from the earth demonstrate a partnership with the beast from the sea. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. It looks like this beast from the earth can perform miracles. And this is something similar to what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians living in Thessalonica. Paul warned his fellow Christians about a man of lawlessness who was doomed to destruction. Paul said that this man of lawlessness will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Paul goes on, The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So this man of lawlessness will be setting himself up in Christ's church and will be able to perform signs and wonders. This beast will look like Christ, but talk like Satan. Back to the description of the beast from the earth. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. The beast from the earth would deceive many, many people. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. The beast from the earth would also practice economic discrimination against those who belong to Christ. People didn't have the name or number of the beast would suffer economically. So the beast from the earth is not a threat from outside the church. It is a threat from the inside, from those who look like Christ, but speak like Satan. The vision ends with these words. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. In previous episodes, we've examined the numbers that God has given special significance to, like, like the number seven, which symbolize God's perfect covenant relationship with his church. The number six is close to seven, but it falls short. 
Now, the same Apostle John, who experienced this vision of the beast from the earth, had written something similar in his three letters. He referred to the betrayers in Christ's church, whom he calls antichrists. First, the definition. The prefix anti can either mean against, against Christ, or it can mean in place of Christ. Both make sense. This Antichrist is an agent of Satan who opposes Christ and seeks to replace Christ. This is what John wrote. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? This is key. It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist denying the Father and the Son. So John explains who the Antichrists are. They are liars. Very simply, whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ is an Antichrist. Such a person denies the Father and the Son. And whoever denies that Jesus is God's Son is an Antichrist. Now, in addition to this enemy within Christ's church being called the beast from the earth or the man of lawlessness or antichrist, other terms are also used to describe this enemy. This beast is referred to as a little horn in Daniel, as well as an evil king. Jesus talked about false Christs and false prophets. In Revelation, we also have the names the great prostitute and Babylon. All of these names refer to the enemy from within Christ's church. So what does this man of lawlessness or antichrist look like? How can we spot them? What are the words that Satan speaks through the man of lawlessness or antichrist? It's quite simple. Since this podcast is about numbers, let me illustrate by using numbers. There are really only two religious faiths in the world. One namely the true Christian faith, believes that Jesus has done everything to secure forgiveness and eternal life for us. Our salvation is 100% accomplished by Jesus. Our contribution is zero, zip, nada. So that's one of the religious faiths in this world. The other religious faith in the world teaches that a person has to contribute to their eternal salvation. It doesn't matter if they say it's 100% a person's doing or just 1% or even just a half a percent. Any church or denomination or religious group that claims that human beings need to contribute to their eternal salvation fall under the category of Antichrist. Believing that you can do anything to contribute to your eternal salvation is a lie that comes from the father of lies, Satan. And remember, the beast from the earth, whose mark is 666, is not a threat from outside the church, but rather from inside the church. Remember, the beast from the earth looks like Christ, 
is lamb-like, but in reality speaks the lies of Satan. Because this beast is alive and active today, each of us needs to practice discernment within Christ's church so that we don't buy into Satan's lie that our eternal life is somehow dependent upon us. A few minutes ago, we heard that the beast from the sea, governmental power, was given authority for a period of 42 months. What's that all about? Actually, there are a couple of other numbers that we need to throw into this same bucket. Here's a question for you. What do the numbers 3 and a half, 42, and 1260 have in common? Also, related to these numbers is the phrase, a time, times, and half a time, which seems to be another way of saying three and a half. Of all of the numbers in the Bible, I'll be honest, I find this set of numbers the most difficult to understand. The number three and a half years is mentioned two times in the New Testament, referring to an actual historical event in the Old Testament involving the prophet Elijah. Jesus referenced it. He said, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. And Jesus' half-brother James referenced it as well in his New Testament letter. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. All the other occurrences of three and a half, forty-two, twelve hundred and sixty, and a time, times, and half a time are in visions seen by Daniel in the Old Testament and the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. Because these numbers show up in visions, that makes it difficult how to understand them. There are several references to the three and a half uh, being years, which is equivalent to 42 months, which is equivalent to 1260 days. So these references, they're all the same time frame. But there's also a reference in Revelation to three and a half days, an even shorter period of time. So what's the three and a half years or 42 months or 1260 referring to? Frankly, I don't know for sure. And I certainly don't want to say more than Scripture says. Just consider this. In Revelation 12, John sees a vision where he is told that God will protect Christ's church for 1260 days. That suggests to me that the 1260 days is the entire New Testament age. On the other hand, we know from Revelation chapter 20 that Satan is bound, kept on a leash by Jesus for the New Testament age. But right before Jesus returns on Judgment Day, Satan is going to be set free to wreak havoc on Christ's church. Is that the three and a half years? Some, Bi some Bible scholars think so. Now, what is significant, I believe, about the number three and a half is that it is half of the number seven. Recall again that seven is the number of God's perfect covenant with his people. The number three and a half may very well symbolize a broken covenant, whether that be the three and a half years of drought in Elijah's day, because God's people have forsaken the Lord to worship the idol Baal, or whether it refers to the New Testament age where the two beasts attack Christ's church, or whether it refers to the time when Satan is loose to deceive even the chosen ones of God, if that were possible. 
You know, maybe we should just leave it at that. So let's look at one more unique number. The number 153. This number, again, only occurs once in the Bible, but it's kind of interesting. Let's set the context. This event occurred after Jesus' resurrection. Seven of Jesus' disciples were out on the Sea of Galilee one night fishing. Morning came, and they hadn't caught a thing. Jesus arrived, and from the shore, he told them to throw their net on the right side of the boat. Jesus promised that they would catch some fish. And did they ever. There were so many fish that they couldn't haul the net into the boat, so they had to drag the net full of fish to the shore. On the shore, they counted 153 large fish. Why such a specific number? And is there any significance to the number 153? Perhaps. In the 5th century of the Common Era, a Bible scholar by the name of Jerome linked an end times prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 47 with the 153 fish and with one of Jesus' parables. This is quite a thread. Ezekiel had a vision in which he saw a river flowing out from the temple in Jerusalem to the Dead Sea. When the water from the temple emptied into the Dead Sea, the salty water became fresh water. Then the voice in the vision said, Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish, because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from En Gedi to En Eglaim. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. Jerome believed that the miracle in Ezekiel's vision symbolized the apostles, who were called by Jesus to be fishers of men, would bring all nations, people of every language, nation, and tribe into the kingdom. Jerome also linked the prophecy and the 153 fish in the net with one of Jesus' parables recorded in Matthew 13. Jesus said, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So both Ezekiel and Jesus talk about many fish and many different kinds of fish, symbolizing the kingdom of God. But what is the significance of the number 153? Another Bible scholar who was a contemporary of Jerome was Augustine. Augustine noted that the number 153 is a triangular number. What's that? A triangular number is the sum of dots in an equilateral triangle formed and filled with equally spaced dots. The number 1, 3, 6, 10, and 15 are triangular numbers, for example. Uh, let me try to picture this. Take the number 3. The triangle would have three dots, two on each side of the equilateral triangle. Now, this is a bit hard to explain. Just do a web search. Pictures are worth a thousand words, and you'll understand triangular numbers. Well, the number 153 is a triangular number. 
In fact, it's the 17th triangular number in sequence. And here's another math concept tied to the triangular number. If you add up all of the numbers from 1 to 17, do you know what the sum is? 153. And you didn't think math was fun or interesting. So there seems to be a relationship between the number 17 and the number 153. Back to Ezekiel's prophecy. There are two cities mentioned, En Gedi, which was located on the west side of the Dead Sea, and En Eglaim, which was on the south side. The numerical value for the name Gedi adds up to 17. And guess what the numerical value for the name En Eglaim adds up to? You got it, 153. Now, these relationships might be coincidental, but then again, they might be intentional on the part of our Creator God. After all, He is the one who created numbers in the first place. Numbers. They're part of God's creation, with some of them being really special. Numbers in the Bible are evidence of our amazing God. They are Bible threads that extend throughout the Bible and into our lives. Next time, we'll be starting a brand new series that I'm calling True Crime Bible Edition. In this series, we'll be taking a look at crimes in the Bible, how God responded to them, and what we can learn from them. I hope you'll join me. If you have any thoughts or questions about this podcast, please email me at bruce at timeofgrace.org. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and God bless.